Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get I'm assuming that if you listen to this podcast, you're at least somewhat familiar with the big Oracle Google lawsuit uh, that lasted nearly a decade, I guess, before finally getting a Supreme Court ruling in April of this year. Uh, That ruling was uh, correctly seen as a victory for Google, declaring that Google's use of the Java API or parts of the Java API in Android was fair use. Uh, However, as we noted repeatedly on TechDirt over the years, that really was the wrong question. Uh, There really shouldn't have been a fair use question at all, well, according to me, uh, as it seemed fairly obvious that uh, at least under Section 102B of the Copyright Act, that... uh, it, there was, there should be no copyright at all in an API, uh, 102B, saying that uh, copyright is not available for any idea, procedure, process, system, method of operation, concept, principle, or discovery. And at least to me, an API is a system and method of operation. But anyways, uh, if you remember the history of the case, which went back and forth uh, many times, too many times, it started as a patent case with a sort of tiny copyright copyright bit on the side. uh, And the patent stuff uh, got out of the tossed out of the case very early on, leaving just the copyright question. And the district court judge, William uh, Alsop, uh, overruled the original jury in saying that the APIs were not subject to copyright. Uh, But then the appeals court rejected that and sent it back to the district court. And there was a second trial on fair use. Uh, It's notable Uh, for folks listening, that the appeals court in this case was not the Ninth Circuit, who would normally hear such an appeal from the Northern District of California, but rather, (coughs) excuse me, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, which hears all patent appeals for silly reasons that I'm not going to get into here and now. Uh, And even though there were no patent claims left in the case, uh, because it started out as a patent case, all the appeals went to the Federal Circuit who has, I would say, a long and somewhat disappointing history of never seeing an intellectual property right that they can't expand in some way or another. Anyway, uh, two of the world's most knowledgeable and thoughtful scholars on intellectual property issues, Pam Samuelson from Berkeley Law and Mark Lemley from Stanford Law, recently co-wrote a wonderful new paper entitled Interfaces and Interoperability After Google versus Oracle. Uh, And the paper is exploring the history, the present, and the future of copyright for interfaces and interoperability. So when two of the most respected scholars in the field team up to write a paper, you know it's going to be worth reading. And also, you know that it's going to be worth having them on on our podcast to talk about it. So uh, Pam, Mark, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Happy to be be here. here. Cool. So, uh, Pam, I want I want to start with you, uh, as I know this is an issue of intellectual property's impact on interfaces that you have studied and written about for many, many years. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the history here? Um, I think a lot of people actually are not that well aware of it, but there have been many, many cases going back decades uh, about 
interfaces, APIs, interoperability, and copyright. And so how, how did the courts prior to Google and Oracle uh, view this issue? Well, I want to start a little bit earlier. When Congress decided to uh, use copyright law to protect computer programs, um, it was at a time when uh, interoperability and compatibility uh, was just not a thing. Uh, every program was written for a specific operating system, and none of them uh, essentially were available to uh, interoperate. Uh, and so um, uh, they just didn't think about interfaces uh, and interoperability uh, at the time. Uh, and so they put this Section 102B uh, exclusion of methods and processes and systems, um, uh, thinking that that would be a place to uh, make sure that computer programs wouldn't get too much copyright protection. Um, uh, but um, the courts didn't actually address the interface uh, versus implementation uh, issue uh, until 1992 uh, in uh, a case in the Second Circuit Court of Appeals, which is well known as a kind of the major copyright uh, jurisdiction. Um, and that case basically said uh, that, uh, that elements of computer programs that are necessary in order to uh, be compatible compatible with other programs uh, are not within the scope of protection that copyright provides to computer programs. Uh, it didn't rely on Section 102B, unfortunately, but uh, it found another doctrine um, in copyright law uh, known as Senna Fair um, and said that, these, uh, that the interface basically was a constraint on the design choices uh, of, uh, uh, of the second comer. Uh, and so the fact that these two programs were similar um, uh, structurally uh, was because they had to they had to be that way in order for both sets of programs to interoperate with IBM operating system programs. So. Very soon after uh, that, uh, within months actually after that decision, uh, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in a case involving reverse engineering to get access to interface information uh, picked up on uh, Altai's uh, compatibility is a good thing and we should support it. And so reverse engineering a, a, another a firm's program in order to extract interface information was a fair use. Um, and there were several other cases uh, uh, um, in other courts of appeals. So the Altai case basically came in and said compatibility is a good thing uh, and uh, copyright protection shouldn't be used if you need to use uh, some parts of another program in order to be compatible. Uh, and that's the way the law was. Um, uh, solid Solidly, um, uh, with the exception of the Third Circuit, which um, uh, I won't go into right now. But um, but the overwhelming consensus was that the that Altai was right, and that compatibility uh, was a constraint uh, that should uh, not uh, lead to copyright infringement claims. Uh, and so everything had kind of died down. Um, uh, until the Federal Circuit's decision in 2014, suddenly saying that as long as uh, as long as there's any other way uh, for Sun engineers to have uh, structured or named uh, these uh, API declarations, um, um, then it's original uh, enough to be protected by copyright law, and they basically just 
uh, thought that compatibility was irrelevant uh, to copyrightability, um, even though there were many other decisions that they just ignored, uh, that they um, uh, that they upheld uh, Oracle's copyrightability claim. Right. So. Mark, can, can you discuss a little bit about why you think it's it's important, you know, from a sort of policy and innovation standpoint that interfaces and APIs don't get locked down under under copyright law? Sure. I, 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 and Pam's right to say that we started the sort of computer software world in a, in a sort of true walled garden, right, in which sort of your software was uh, entirely captive to your hardware. Um, uh, but that's not a world that worked terribly well by modern standards, right? It was better than what we had, for sure. Uh, but uh, interoperability uh, was a dramatic improvement in the uh, in the sort of nature of technology, right? Both because it allowed people to build things in modular form, people to sort of connect to other uh, things, um, uh, and because it sort of paved the way for the the adoption of uh, of the sort of protocols and the internet. Uh, and uh, so, what we saw as a result of the cases that that uh, Pam is talking about are uh, an enormous sort of explosion of different uh, models, uh, different business model approaches, uh, and a great deal of competition, right? You could um, uh, build or write to a, a dominant platform without having to get permission from the owner of that platform. Uh, and that, I think, uh, opened up the, the sort of technology growth that we saw in the 1990s and the 2000s, uh, both in software and on the internet. Uh, and I think one of the things that is interesting to me about the, the copyright aspect of this case, and I, I think we'll talk about this in a minute, is that it coincides with the uh, sort of loss of some of that interoperability and a, and a bit of a return to walled gardens. Uh, so I think it's not an accident that we're seeing kind of copyright as a, as a barrier to interoperability rear its head again 20 years down the line. At the same time, we're seeing other barriers uh, to an open and interoperable computer system. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about, you know, um, and this is this becomes really clear in the in the paper, in the first section of the paper, um, is that, you know, there were a bunch of these different rulings you know, um, some going back to the eighties and, and, but mostly in, in the nineties, um, looking at this issue, but, but, and while a lot of them, the consensus view was that these things were not covered by copyright law, um, the reasoning behind them was often different. Right. And so you mentioned like Senefair as, as one, uh, idea that there's also questions around like merger doctrine and uh, and 102b, which which we talked about, and and you know my reaction is always like, well, 102b solves everything, <laughs> like don't don't worry about the others, but but the courts don't always agree with that. So can we discuss just for for people who are listening who maybe are not uh, copyright nerds and and scholars, you know what what are the the sort of differences here between like you know what is the merger doctrine and Senna Fair and, and these different concepts and, and even fair use and, and how the courts applied, applied that to, to these questions? Um, so 
merger is a, uh, is a concept uh, that when there uh, are, as a practical matter, only a small number of ways to express something, uh, uh, then uh, that um, uh, whatever it is that is difficult to express uh, in any other way um, uh, isn't protected. So if we basically say that, um, uh, that an idea, a fact, or a function can only be uh, uh, can only be structured in uh, one or a small number of ways. Then uh, basically, you can't um, get copyright protection for it. You can see how that makes sense as a way of thinking about uh, APIs. Is because if you want to be able to interoperate with another program, the API basically constrains you. There's no other way to say um, math.max uh, than math.max uh, in the Java uh, in the Java language, um, and get the comparison of two numbers to see which one is larger. Uh, so um, uh, merger is actually not a bad doctrine, um, and uh, so uh, that makes uh, some sense to me. Uh, the um, the uh, Santa Fe, as I mentioned, is this when there's a constraint on your uh, ability to express. Again, Santa Fe can be uh, uh, can be helpful as a doctrine. Uh, I actually really like the the, the way that the uh, that the Ninth Circuit in the Sega versus Accolade case uh, characterized um, uh, the functional requirements for achieving compatibility are unprotectable procedures uh, under Section 102B. So those seem to me to be the sort of the strongest ones. And, uh, and uh, the brief that uh, I wrote uh, to the Supreme Court uh, was pitching the sort of interfaces as 102B unprotectables. Um, and um, so, of course, I'm disappointed that they didn't pick up on it. Uh, although I see in parts of the uh, uh, the Google opinion little bits of uh, merger and a little bits of uh, system exclusion. So uh, I, I I think we we made some progress with some of the justices. Yeah, and and just to add to that, I think. Um, so there are these various different ways courts have thought about this. Uh, in part, this was courts were struggling with it. They kind of came to a consensus on one basis or another. And so we and then the cases went away. So we never really worked out which of these is the best doctrine. Um, I mean, the way I think about it is this. Um, if you say this is a 102B issue, uh, uh, systems and methods of operation are just excluded from copyright protection. What you get is a pretty flat absolute rule that says this is a system or a method of operation, you don't get copyright protection for it and we're done. Um, if you say uh, uh, the merger doctrine or the Senna Fair idea, what that says is, well, you can protect something, but you can't extend that protection uh, to kind of standard or stock features. You can't extend that protection if it's going to effectively lock up the basic idea. And as a practical matter, that will often be the case with interfaces because you need them, uh, you, you're going to control them, but it becomes more of a case-by-case -case analysis than just to say, this is a method of operation and so we don't have to get into that. And even more so, I think, with the route that the court did take in Google versus Oracle, which is fair use. Uh, I think the court's opinion is great in many respects. Uh, it is a sort of powerful statement about the importance of interoperability. Uh, but one of the things about the fair use doctrine is it 
is by nature a fact-specific, four-factor inquiry. Uh, Larry Lessig once called fair use the right to hire a lawyer, uh, right? Because it doesn't tell you where the outcome of the case is going to be. All it tells you is, you know, if we decide that you're a good guy in these particular circumstances, we'll let you off the hook. Uh, and I think that I think that while the Google Supreme Court decision is really valuable and really important, uh, it's not enough just to say, you know what, in some particular case, interoperability will prevail because that leaves us with a lot of uncertainty, right? And a more categorical approach like um, uh, uh, Section 102B and systems and methods of operation gives people a lot more clarity as to what can and can't be protected. I think it's actually worth mentioning also that um, uh, that the American uh, Committee for Interoperable Systems, um, ACES, uh, was founded by Sun Microsystems because Sun was the foremost proponent uh, of freedom to interoperate uh, of all the software companies, uh, and there were. Uh, ACES filed uh, amicus briefs in almost all of the cases uh, that we discuss in the paper um, uh, in support of interoperability, compatibility, and no copyright. Uh, so uh, Sun, uh, which of course developed the Java technologies uh, that are at issue uh, in the Oracle case, um, Oracle actually was a member of ACES for a while, um, uh, but uh, once it uh, sued um, once it sued Google, it was like, I'm not an ASUS member anymore. Um, uh, but it's a, I think it's really important to re realize that, that the kind of the non-dominant uh, software companies were, were really promoting interoperability, uh, promoting compatibility, showing that uh, this would be good for competition, good for innovation. Um, and so it wasn't just the courts to kind of thunk it up by themselves. Uh, there was actually some industry presence that was basically saying, look, interoperability is really important. And that was certainly true, too, in the amicus briefs in the, before the Supreme Court in the, in the Google versus Oracle case. Um, the software industry was basically saying, um, uh, don't do this, Supreme Court. Don't, don't screw things up. Right. You know, one of the things that, that struck me, and, and Pam, you, you got to this a little bit in, in, uh, in what you said earlier, was, was the differentiation between like the functional aspects of software and, and the creative aspects, right? Because copyright in theory is supposed to protect sort of creative expression, right? We think of copyright normally in terms of like, you know, books and music and movies and, and sort of creative expression. And it's not really supposed to cover functional stuff, right? So when you get down to the, to the level of, of interfaces and, you know, and interoperability, that feels like a functional aspect that, that, you know, I, that, to me, again, you know, I've made it clear my position on this, but but it doesn't feel like these things should be covered by by copyright. How how much do you feel that the judges are are taking that into account? You know, sort of this difference between what is functional and what is creative. And and Pam, I'll I'll start with you. So one of the things that's really important about the uh, Computer Associates versus Altai decision that I mentioned earlier is that it basically says that there are lots of unprotectable elements of programs 
and that you have to filter them out before making a judgment about whether there was appropriation of expression from another program. And so this filtration is basically saying um, that things that are efficient parts of programs, things that are constrained by uh, compatibility, things that are in the public domain, things that are basically standard operating uh, sort of things in the computing field, uh, those things should not be the basis of infringement. So this kind of filtration idea is basically really a way of trying to say, let's get down to what the Altai court called the golden nuggets of expression um, and only make our, uh, our comparison based on uh, those nuggets of, of expression. So, um, uh, and the Supreme Court's decision in, in Google versus Oracle, um, although it doesn't cite Altai, agrees that there's a sort of this effort to sort of uh, make sure that copyright is not uh, protecting functional things, and so the scope of copyright protection in computer programs is thin. Now, that conception of, of copyright uh, protection being thin is really important uh, for, um, for fair use uh, because the, the, the uh, the more functional something is, the the more likely it is that it should that reuse of it should be uh, should be fair use. Uh, but also uh, for um, uh, thinking about sort of what are the elements of computer programs that copyright ought to protect. Um, you know, the Contu uh, people who studied uh, copyright and computer programs didn't really have a clue, and neither did anybody in Congress, and so they just kind of pushed it off to the courts to try to figure out um, what's protectable and not protectable. Um, and the Supreme Court also picked up on this, um, uh, you know, that, that, that copyright for computer programs is kind of like a jigsaw puzzle where the puzzle, the puzzle pieces don't fit together. Um, and so there's kind of, it's just, Copyright uh, doesn't protect functional stuff generally, um, and so it's really a tough puzzle because we don't have um, good kind of norms and rules about how to uh, how to exclude it. So this kind of filtration idea uh, has been the sort of the most powerful part uh, of the sort of the the tradition of cases that uh, Mark and I talk about in part one. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. Um, you know, if you were to sort of design a system from scratch, knowing what we know now about software, uh, it's far from obvious that copyright would be it. Pam wrote about this uh, uh, decades ago. Um, it's also far from obvious that patent law would be it. And I know uh, your uh, listeners have heard about some of the problems with broad software patents in previous episodes. Um, but one of the things that a kind of limited copyright with an interoperability uh, uh, protection does is it allows a quick and cheap way of preventing straight out sort of piracy, right? I duplicated your program exactly um, without giving that copyright owner effective control over people who might want to write a similar program, uh, write a program that works with that program, add on to or improve that program and the like. Um, so, you know, so, so there's some advantage to, to having an ability to stop just outright duplication as long as we don't then take the mechanisms of copyright law and use it to sort of create a broad right to prevent anybody from uh, uh, doing anything with your program. I, and, you know, one of the things that, that I believe happened in, in 
this case and in some of the rulings is the fact that, you know, unlike many other areas of copyright, the judges, for the most part, don't don't understand software code, or they look at it and it doesn't make sense to them, right? I mean, there, there were a bunch of stories famously about, you know, Judge Alsop in the in the Northern District, um, who, who, you know, uh, ruled in favor of Google in, in both of the trials, uh, you know, ha- that he had some coding experience. And then based on that, like taught himself some aspects of Java to really understand what was going on. And, and his rulings on it were very clear and understandable. But I think for judges who don't have experience with, with software, and coding, you know, an API and, and, you know, standard implementing code and executable code, all, it all looks the same, right? It's, it's all just, you know, it, 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 none of it makes sense. You can't, you can't understand it and you can't, you know, if, if you're just looking at the code, you can't understand like, you know, which parts are functional and which parts are creative and, and, you know, how to do that sort of filtration aspect uh, is much harder when you don't understand it yourself and, and you have no ability to understand it. How, how much do you think that played into the decisions in the, in the Google Oracle case? Yeah, I, I, I do think it played into it, right? And so you're absolutely right. I mean, judge Alsop kind of uncharacteristically, it's hard to imagine asking every district judge to do this in every case, right? He basically dug into the facts and sort of learned the coding. Um, but, but the fact that um, uh, judges are not technically skilled means either they're gonna have to rely on experts more. Um, it also paves the way for uh, sort of clever rhetorical strategies. So I think Oracle, one of Oracle's uh, uh, best moves in this case was to talk about declaring code. Um, uh, now, which isn't actually really code in a meaningful sense, right? It's the sort of declarations that sort of title and identify uh, the things. Google wrote the code that implemented, that re-implemented the API, but it had to sort of do so in accordance with the declarations. But once you say something like, this is declaring code and, oh, look, there's 11,000 lines of it, um, you know, the, the non-technical judge looks at that and says, gosh, that sounds like copying. Uh, this, to me, is one of the arguments for um, uh, a more um, uh, categorical approach to, to excluding uh, systems and methods of operation. Notwithstanding the fact that Supreme Court ultimately got it right, uh, I think we were sort of very lucky to have Justice Breyer, who cares a lot about this stuff and also was willing to dig into the technical issues. But if you look at the oral arguments, uh, the number of sort of crazy analogies that are being flown uh, thrown back and forth on all sides, right, I think reflect exactly what you're asking, which is, hey, you know, the judges are trying to get a grip on this when they understand that they just they can't actually fundamentally know what the, uh, you know, what the what the coding system is like. Yeah. Pam, did you have any thoughts on that on that as well? So I think that the problem of uh, judicial lack of expertise about technology is uh, is a deep one. Um, and I think that we uh, have much to uh, thank uh, the judge who wrote the Altai opinion, uh, because the Altai opinion basically uh, was picked up right away, uh, and every circuit, um, uh, except the federal circuit, uh, seems to uh, uh, defer to it. Um, and uh, so it kind of got it right. And so the, the, the courts then had some kind of infrastructure. Uh, and so when somebody would say, oh, you know, they copied my algorithm, 
the court could basically say, oh, algorithm is unprotectable by copyright law because it's a procedure um, uh, of the sort that, uh, that 102B is supposed to filter out. Uh, so that, that helped uh, a tremendous amount. But then the Federal Circuit basically decided that, um, uh, that compatibility was a commercial objective, uh, maybe a competitive objective, uh, but was irrelevant to copyrightability. So um, uh, another thing that I think is really hard about this is that courts find it really hard to say that words are functional. So you look at the sort of the, the Java declarations they're a set of words. Words don't seem to be functional. They seem to be the kind of thing that copyright protects. Uh, uh, and uh, because Congress didn't know what it was doing when it was enacting uh, the amendments to the copyright statute that added computer programs to it, um, uh, they defined it in a kind of an open-ended way. And for uh, Justice uh, Thomas and Justice Alito, you know, the API sort of fits within the definition in section 101, and therefore it's as copyrightable as anything. And so kind of this effort to kind of make it into um, really like what would make sense, uh, right? The Kantu and, and Congress just kind of threw it over the fence to the courts uh, without realizing that the courts are not going to have the technical expertise uh, to basically do that kind of fine tuning. Uh, so the Altai decision really was um, uh, the turning point, uh, and uh, hopefully we can get back to that. A problem with getting back to, uh, to that kind of filter heavy filtration um, uh, approach uh, is that it's really easy to add a patent claim to your complaint. Uh, and then your, uh, your appeal is going to go to the federal circuit. And so even if there's good, good regional circuit law about the uncopyrightability of APIs, if the case goes to the federal circuit, the federal circuit has a way of just not really interpreting the case the way that the court basically says that it does. Um, and so um, that's actually um, one of the problems that, that Mark and I are concerned about, um, is that the Federal Circuit's 20, uh, 2014 uh, copyrightability decision was bad. But they won't, they're not going to admit that. And so you have still this, this precedent. The Supreme Court didn't uh, didn't strike down that opinion. And so the Federal Circuit will still believe that we were right. Um, you know, Supreme Court didn't reverse us. And so um, uh, that's worrisome to me. Yeah, and that issue is going to come up in a case that's heading to the court this fall um, uh, involving SAS, um, uh, where, where basically they're making the same arguments that uh, the Federal Circuit bought into on 102 in um, and challenging the district court opinion. Yeah. Um, I mean, so it's interesting because the Supreme Court ruling, right? So there were two sort of questions for the Supreme Court to look at, which were basically the two separate issues that the, the federal circuit ruled in two separate rulings, right? One on, on whether or not there was copyrightability in the first place and one on whether or not it was fair use. And the Supreme Court, like the ruling is a little bit weird, right? Because it feels like it wants to, get to the copyrightability issue, but then never quite does and just and just sort of, you know, says it's fair use and then punts on the on the copyrightability issue. Um, 
even though like you can read parts of it to say like at least somebody there, perhaps Justice Breyer, really wanted to say it wasn't copyright copyrightable, but maybe didn't have the the votes of the other justices. Do you have any sense of of you know what what happened there, or sort of where where things went went slightly awry? I mean, again, we're saying like you know Google won the case, but but the ruling was not as um, expansive and and as useful as I think you know the three of us would have hoped. Yeah, so I think um, uh, I, I, I think you may be right about that. I, I think you're right that uh, Justice Breyer probably wanted to reach that issue. Uh, interestingly, the the two dissenters um, uh, basically say, "Hey, you're effectively ruling on this question." Uh, there's no way to sort of come to this conclusion um, um, without uh, doing this, and and you know I think they're they might be right. Um, I mean, there are definitely you know, all of the cases that we've been talking about are cases that show up cited repeatedly in the Google opinion, even though they're not fair use cases. Um, the court's long discussion of the importance of interoperability, I think, supports the arguments that Pam and I make in our paper. Um, so I, I, I do think there are there are at least sort of strong hints uh, from the court that um, uh, that the uh, that the, the sort of copyrightability question sort of ought to be resolved differently than the federal circuit did. And it may simply be, it may be that, you're, that we, they didn't have the votes, and we'll never know the answer to that question. But it may also be that uh, it goes to, to what you were talking about um, uh, earlier, right, which is the justices are really nervous uh, about ruling on something they don't really understand, and their instinct is therefore to sort of take the narrowest possible decision because they're less likely to screw things up if they do that. And I get that instinct, right? Although I think it, you know, leaves open uh, room for the federal circuit to do some mischief uh, in subsequent cases. So I think it's important, actually, that there was a that, that there was a jury verdict here. Um, uh, and I think the, the fact that the Federal Circuit um, uh, overturned um, uh, a jury verdict was something that uh, for um, some of the justices that were voting with the majority uh, was a factor. Uh, and so the, you know, the, uh, the Federal Circuit basically uh, just accepted uh, the Oracle's arguments about, uh, about market harm. Um, and uh, you see in the Breyer opinion uh, a reference to, well, the jury heard evidence uh, about market harm uh, from Oracle, but it also heard some, uh, some evidence that Google uh, presented that suggested that there wasn't actually lost license fees, that there wasn't actual um, uh, opportunity for, uh, for Sun or Oracle uh, to enter the smartphone market. Um, and so they must have believed Google's witnesses over Oracle's. Uh, so I think that, uh, I think that helped uh, Breyer get his majority. Um, uh, and I think that Breyer wrote the strongest fair use um, opinion that he could possibly have done um, uh, to, uh, to get it as close to being a copyrightability ruling uh, as uh, he could. So, so let's talk about kind of where things go from here and kind of what is the, the sort of future aspect of this. Um, Mark, you already mentioned that there is a case that's heading to the federal circuit now. Um, and, and actually, do you want to talk a little bit about, about that case and kind of what, what the details are in that case, just so, so people are aware of it? Pam, you want to? 
Um, I'm writing a brief in that case, so, um, uh, so I'm probably the one to, to explain it. So uh, SAS um, uh, uh, obviously does a statistical analysis program, uh, is very widely uh, used, and uh, World Programming Limited uh, developed a program that essentially emulates the functionality of the SAS program so that, uh, that users of, uh, of the SAS language can write programs in the SAS language, which of course SAS wants to be um, uh, processed on SAS software. Um, and what uh, WPL allows is that anybody who wrote a program um, in the SAS language can now uh, essentially run it in the WPL um, uh, program emulating the functionality uh, instead of SAS. And so SAS has been losing some customers uh, to WPL. Um, and it brought a similar lawsuit in, uh, in the UK. Um, it lost that lawsuit because the Court of Justice of the, um, court, the European Court of, um, of Justice basically said uh, that the uh, that the behavior, the functional behavior of the, of the SAS program and the SAS language were not protectable by copyright law. So it lost the case in the UK, brought another case in Tennessee, lost that case in Tennessee, um, but um, then brought a, the same case in, um, uh, in, uh, in Texas, and now it's before the federal circuit. Um, and they're still kind of plugging away as though, you know, uh, they have the same input formats as we do and the same output formats. Well, it's because you basically are, are processing the same um, programs that individual users have created uh, and that they want to have a choice of platform on which it can run. So SAS is basically asking the, the federal circuit to say that there's originality in our program and they copied something and therefore um, uh, it must be copyright infringement. And um, unfortunately, they've hired the same lawyer, uh, one of the same lead lawyers as was representing Oracle in the, in the Google case. Uh, and so um, she's trying to win again uh, the same uh, uh, argument that she, uh, was won, oh, she won on in uh, 2014. Wow. Interesting. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit more about why all this, why all of this is, is so important. I mean, we discussed a little bit at, at the opening, just, you know, the, the, this general idea of, of interoperability and compatibility um, and the nature of sort of, you know, the innovation boom that, that happened in the 90s in part because of this. Um, can we go a little bit deeper? I mean, right now we're dealing in a time where, you know, there's a lot of concern about, about competition and, you know, that there, there, there are a bunch of big companies out there, um, uh, including, including the, the, the victor in, in the Supreme court case here with Google. Um, and, and, and lots of people are talking about like antitrust and, and I'm, I've been perplexed at the fact that, that nobody wants to talk about things like, like this and how copyright law can hold back competition. And I think this is a perfect example where if you're allowed to, to copyright, you know, uh, an API or, or other methods of, of creating interoperability and compatibility, that you, you lose out on competition in a really serious way. So, so Mark, do you want to talk a little bit about, about what your thinking is on all of this? 
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. So, so we said, right, it's sort of you, you saw kind of interoperability, sort of even sort of pre sort of broad based internet uh, uh, in, the, in the kind of early 1990s, uh, uh, sort of sort of open up lots of different interoperable software programs. The internet, of course, was interoperability on steroids, right? Um, uh, so I, there's a very simple set of protocols and within that simple set of protocols, I can plug anything I want into this network pass anything I want across the network. And we saw this explosion of innovation um, uh, and creativity uh, that's really unprecedented in human history. One of the things I think we've seen for a variety of reasons is that we're kind of pulling back on a lot of that freedom. I mean, the internet is still nominally right an open uh, thing, but but two factors I think have made it more challenging. Right, one is as you indicate the kind of enduring dominance of a few tech platforms, uh, and the other is the move to mobile devices and smartphones. Uh, right, which uh, are much less uh, uh, run anything you want on them, right? Apple's system in particular, um, you want to run something on it, you got to put it through the App Store. You got to give us 30%, but you've also got to get approval, right? And, uh, and we might not approve it uh, because we compete with it. Right. Spotify had a heck of a time getting on the App Store. We might not approve it because um, uh, we just don't like it, um, right? Or we don't think consumers uh, uh, appreciate it, right? And so that's moved us back towards a sort of mother may I innovation scheme, right? Not attach anything you want, right? But attach things that the sort of gatekeepers, right? Whether they're the kind of uh, uh, tech platform intermediaries or the device makers uh, say you can attach. And I think that has real costs. So to me, this case and this issue is, is one piece of a broader effort to try to get back to a world that is interoperable in the kind of, uh, kind of 1990s, uh, 2000 sense uh, of that word. Um, there are a bunch of obstacles to that, right? One is uh, that if there are a few gatekeepers who can sort of choke this off, who have walled gardens, we might need to do something like uh, like antitrust with that. But as you suggest, right, the first thing we might want to try is not let's break up the tech companies, right? But uh, let's open up. Uh, the interfaces to allow people to sort of write to uh, take from uh, uh, modify uh, the data that those companies have control over, right? Bring us back to the world we had uh, uh, 25 or 30 years ago in that regard. And um, so sort of the obstacles, right? Some of it is dominance. Some of it has been copyright. Some of it has been the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Uh, some of it has been sort of the, the essentially uh, expansion of, of contract law to, to cover things that don't look like contracts at all, right? By, by coming on our website, you agree to all these terms and conditions. So I think if we're going to get back to interoperability, right, we need to sort of have a, a sort of multi-pronged legal front. I think copyright, uh, Google is a big step, but but one of the things Pam and I are talking about is is you know going a bit further to make sure that copyright won't interfere with interoperability. We took another pretty big step at the Supreme Court this year in the Van Buren case on the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right? Restricting the ability of someone to say, "Hey, uh, you coming onto my website and mining data is uh, is uh, is a 
is hacking and a computer crime. Uh, but I think we're still going to have to go after uh, the sort of expansive reading of contracts, um, and we're going to have to try to figure out um, uh, maybe as a as a sort of alternative to antitrust and breakup ways to build interoperability into these networks that once had them but have kind of lost them. Yeah, Pam, do you have uh, anything to add to to all that? So I think that it's really important that the Supreme Court's Google opinion actually talks about competition um, and talks about the ways in which uh, overexpansive interpretation of copyright uh, scope and computer programs uh, can have anti-competitive uh, effects. And so um, uh, uh, the court basically, I think, is aware that the uh, that copyright can be an impediment to competition, um, fair competition, an impediment to uh, ongoing innovation, um, and uh, really regarded Oracle as trying to lock things up rather than open things up. Um, and that, uh, that signal, I think, is a very powerful signal. Uh, and there's, uh, there, there's more than one place in the opinion where uh, the court expresses concern about the unwarranted monopoly that copyright can confer if it's misinterpreted. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it'll be interesting to sort of see how, you know, how those are used and sort of where, where those apply. I mean, the, the, the thing that, that, you know, Mark, I think you're exactly right. And, and, and Pam as well is like recognizing all of these different things play together. And yet most of the public discussions on them seem to want to silo all of them. You know, the, the, they don't sort of recognize that, that, that competition and CFAA and copyright and patents and, you know, and a variety of other ones too. Like, you know, you can keep going and adding other, other bits and pieces of, of different laws, um, that, that they're all sort of connected and in, in sort of making the world that we live in today. Um, and, you know, it is really important, I think, you know, maybe we're taking it for granted, but I think there is a strong argument that the world that we had in, in the 90s and early 2000s of sort of, you know, amazing innovation and, and, and the sort of permissionless innovation that occurred back then was really important and was really valuable. And it would be nice to get back to, to that kind of world. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, we've covered a lot. There's a lot in the paper. Um, uh, you know, I hope that, that people will go and, and read it. It's, you know, as you would expect, uh, from, from the two of you, very, very readable and understandable. Uh, even if you're not, a, a, a copyright geek, uh, like some of us, I think, I think lots of people will enjoy it. Um, do, do either of you have any sort of final thoughts you want to leave our listeners with, uh, Mark, no. anything or... Uh, so uh, thanks for this. It's been a great discussion. Uh, the paper you can find uh, uh, online on SSRN, and it is forthcoming in the Texas Law Review. Cool. And Pam, any final thoughts? Uh, so I'm actually optimistic. Um, uh, I, uh, I, I've gotten more optimistic as I got older, and um, uh, I would have been very pessimistic if the Supreme Court had uh, affirmed uh, the Federal Circuit. Uh, so um, uh, that's, a, that's a very big step in the right direction in software copyright land. Uh, now if we can just prevent the Federal Circuit from basically becoming the Supreme Court of 
copyrights in the software cases because um, uh, the Supreme Court's not going to take every software case. Uh, so we've got to make sure that the federal circuit learns uh, to apply regional circuit law the way that they're supposed to. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see, hopefully. All right. Well, um, thanks. Thanks to both of you. Um, you know, it's a wonderful paper. Thanks for, for, for writing it, putting it together for all the work that you guys have both done uh, over the many years uh, on these different issues. And thanks also for taking the time to, to join us on the podcast. I'm sure that our listeners will enjoy it. And, thanks for listening. Uh, and thank you. Yeah. And thanks. Thanks to everyone for, for listening as well. And, uh, and we'll be back next week. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get. To grab a shovel and think of the tap.